All right, so the storm of children has passed. And now we have some uh, well-behaved, respectable adults left in the uh, congregation, right? All of us fully mature in our behaviors and our attitudes, correct? No. Thank you, sir. Well, it's good to uh, be back after taking a week off, and it's just so good to know that um, even though I, I take a week off, that the Word of God will continue to be preached. The fact is, all of us are replaceable, and that's something we need to learn is that we should always be building up and developing the next generation of believers to take our place uh, so that the gospel can continue on through the generations. And so it's just great to know that um, I'm thankful for Jim Hatch for delivering the Word of God last week, and I heard good reports, and I also heard the sermon myself and can verify that Jim did an outstanding job, and I'm thankful for the Word of God that he shared, and I'm thankful to be back in fellowship with all of you. Uh, there's something missing when you're just gone from your church family, and that you just crave to be back amongst the people of God and in fellowship with those that you have such a close relationship with, and Many of us have been through a lot of things over the years, ups and downs together, uh, doing the work of the Lord, working through difficult situations, rejoicing in victories and wins, and um, there's just nothing that replaces the closeness of Christian fellowship. And so it's good to be together, <clears throat> and oftentimes, like uh, Peter said to Christ when they were on Mount Transfiguration, and, and Christ uh, revealed his glory to him, how he just said, Lord, it's good for us to be together. Let's build tents and let's stay here forever. Sometimes we can feel that way when we are in such good fellowship. We just want to be in our bubble together forever, but that's not the plan that God has for our life, is it? That yes, we are to come together and to be in fellowship, but ultimately we're to go out into the world and we're to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so, Church, may we enjoy this brief moment of time that we get to spend together and be encouraged by our fellowship so that we can go out and we can share the gospel with the world together. We're going to be back in 2 Corinthians here this morning. We're continuing our study through this book. And um, by way of review, if you consider 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talks a lot about the logistics of church, but also about the problem of sin as it might exist in a church. So he dealt with a lot of the corporate issues that a church might deal with or a ministry might deal with. In 2 Corinthians, as we're walking through, you see that there's a little more personal language involved in this letter to the church at Corinth, primarily because there were those who had infiltrated the church who became disruptive and who were ultimately trying to discredit the work and the ministry of the Apostle Paul and turn the church against him so that they would follow their idea. And so Paul here is making a plea to the church at Corinth to consider their relationship. And now as for the first seven chapters of this letter, as he has made that plea, as he has encouraged them in their fellowship and friendship, uh, now he's going to talk about and outline what it means to be together for the gospel and what it means to be together in true Christian fellowship and relationship together. And so if your Bibles are open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, we're going to read through his word this morning, but let's begin with prayer. 
Father in heaven, it is good for us to be here together. Together in your name, for your purposes, for your will. God, it's our deepest desire to honor you with our lives. You have done so much for us. You have created us. You have saved us because we've gone astray. And God, you fill us up every day with your Holy Spirit, with joy, with rejoicing. Even through difficult times, God, you are there comforting us and building us up. And Father, we just want to thank you with our lives. We want to thank you with our relationships and the way we conduct ourselves with one another. And Father, I thank you for the wisdom that comes from your word, that you have not left us to be alone in this world, to deal with all the problems of this world alone, but God, you have given us your word and your truth, your guidance. Father, what a gift that we can stand on solid ground. God, that you are the rock upon which we stand. Our feet are sure upon you. So, Father, in this hour, may we all take a step onto your rock, your word. May your word be preached clearly. Father, speak through me. May it be your words, not mine. And God, may we all leave here knowing that you have taught us. And may we not just commit these things to our mind, but may they develop into action. Help us to live out our lives as your word teaches us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 2, if you don't have a Bible with you, we are going through the ESV here up on the projector, so follow along as we read. <clears throat> Paul continues on, pleading with the church at Corinth, he says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. So first of all, Paul's plea here is he's really getting to the point that he is hoping that they will love him as much as he is loving them. And he says this in a very poetic way. He, he pleads with them to make room in your hearts for us. Now, in Paul's ministry, he had truly opened up his heart to them. He had committed himself to the ministry of preaching the gospel and serving the church at Corinth. He was determined to love them sacrificially and to serve them in all ways. And so his plea now is that they would make room in, in their hearts to love him the same way. And so we can refer to this kind of relationship, this uh, relationship where we, we are open to love and to serve one another as an open heart relationship. And by way of inference, as we just read, Paul presents a certain standard by which we should evaluate those who we welcome into or have a desire to be in such a relationship with. Because the fact of the matter is there's many different degrees of relationship in our life. There are those who we might be acquaintances with, but we don't really have a depth of relationship with. Maybe they're coworkers. Maybe they're just distant relatives or people that we don't really know that well, but we know of and maybe a few tidbits about. 
And then you have the deeper relationships, the friendships that are developing where you learn a little bit about people's backgrounds, a little bit about their passions, their desires. Then, of course, you get into the more intimate relationships, of course, spousal relationships where you really get to know somebody at a, at a true depth. And then you have just the, the very, very deep relationships of fellowship where you are truly committed to one another no matter what. A true loving relationship where, where you, you say that I am going to love you whether you like it or not, whether you wrong me or not, and I am going to just serve and love you. And sometimes you don't even know why you feel that way towards somebody. I would say it's because the Lord has put it upon your heart. But those kind of relationships go to such a depth where you suffer together and you struggle together and you are truly committed to bettering one another and to serving and helping one another. And so there are different degrees of relationship, and not everybody is going to qualify for a deep, intimate relationship. In fact, the Bible would warn you to vet those people in your life who seek to become friendly or to become your friend. And so who qualifies to be in in such an open-heart relationship? Well, Paul first begins by making his own case, and he says, we did not wrong you in any way. There's no wrongdoing. And the Greek word there used for wrongdoing simply means injustice or mistreatment, and usually this has to do with malicious injustice or uh, mistreatment. In other words, a desire to harm or to hinder or to hurt. This is ultimately when somebody is abusive towards you, which would be any behavior that causes harm or mental anguish, again, usually malicious or on purpose. This would be emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse. Chronic abusers should be disqualified from having a place in your heart. And Paul he did not wrong the Corinthian church. Rather, he treated them well. He, he committed no wrongdoing. He did not abuse them, but rather he served them. Secondly, Paul says no corruption. There was no corruption towards you. The Greek word there talks about exploiting or manipulating for the sake of selfish gain, corruption. And those who make a, a practice or a lifestyle of sinning are typically a a bad influence. They do not deserve access to the deepest chambers of our heart. Paul was not corrupt. He was not self-seeking, but rather he sought for the good of those he was serving. And finally, he says he took no advantage of them. The Greek word there means to exploit or manipulate for selfish gain. These are typically the types of people who might do a nice deed, but they do a nice deed only so that they can leverage your relationship for future favors on your own behalf. Perhaps you've, you've met such a person. Perhaps you've been friends with such a person, maybe even a, in a close, abusive relationship with such a person where the only time they do a nice thing is if they can get something out of it for themselves. Whereas the Bible talks about true love being give, Be charitable even if you receive nothing in return. 
That's, that's true love. Christ laid down his life even for those who would not return thanks. He healed the lepers when only one returned to give him thanks. The reason why Christ laid down his life is because he loves, truly loves, not expecting anything in return. And so such a person, the Bible says, should not be welcomed into such an open heart relationship. Any of you watch the movie White Christmas this season, every season? I typically do. So you have Bing Crosby and you have Danny Kaye, classic uh, actors from back in the day. And <clears throat> one of the things that always struck me was, you know, Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye are in a warlike situation. This is the beginning of the movie. And all of a sudden, uh, war breaks out amongst them. And Bing Crosby is standing underneath this tall brick wall. And suddenly the, the brick wall starts to, to shudder and is collapsing. And Danny Kaye runs out of nowhere and pushes him out of the way from the collapsing wall, thereby the wall landing upon his shoulders, causing a permanent injury to his arm, or at least that's the implication. And throughout the entire movie, uh, any time that Danny Kaye wants something from Bing Crosby, what does he do? Oh. So he kind of uses that as a manipulation. However, in, in the movie, it's, it's viewed as a lighthearted kind of inside joke, like, oh, you owe me, you owe me. But there's those who take that to a, a malicious or, or an evil extent, where they'll do something for you, they'll sacrifice for you, but yet they'll hold it over you the rest of your life, expecting you to essentially become their slave. And that is taking advantage of people. And so more egregiously than White Christmas and Danny Kay is a person who is envious or covetous and who egregiously manipulates you to get those things from you. Paul wanted nothing from them except for their salvation and for their partnership in the gospel. He truly had a deep love for the church at Corinth. And so therefore, he makes his plea, look at my life, look at my ministry. Can you find any fault in my attitude or relationship with you? Can you sense at all that I was doing this all for my own personal gain? Or was I doing it because I love the Lord and I want to see you live a life of salvation and sanctification, a full life? So therefore, the thing that we can take away from this is that as we're considering our relationships, consider these things. Is someone wronging you? Are they acting in corrupt ways? Are they taking advantage of you? If that is the case, then do not allow them into the inner chambers of your heart. Keep them at a certain distance. Now you might say, well, as Christians, aren't, we're supposed to love everybody. Yes, that's true. But that doesn't mean you need to welcome them into the inner circle of friendship with you. You can still love people at a distance. You can still be charitable to people and serve people who don't reciprocate back to you. But I think it's wise that we do vet our relationships and we do consider these things. But what are some qualifiers? What are some indications that we should open up our hearts to a relationship with someone. Well, first of all, 
Paul talks about doing life and death together. You've heard of the phrase, do life together. In fact, talking to some believers, some believers are getting tired of that phrase. But we know what it means, doing life together. That means that we are committed to seeking the Lord together in our life and supporting one another through all things. Doing life together. But how often have you thought about doing death together? Doing life and death together. As a Christian church, this is our commitment to one another, is that we will see each other through life and all the different things that come up, the the wins and the defeats, all the different things, the trials, the trouble, the celebration, all those things. But what about when it comes time to die? Or what about when we're faced with trouble and there's a risk of death? For example, putting putting our lives on the line for the gospel or putting our lives on the line so that another might live? Are we committed to that depth of relationship and love where we are willing to die for one another? And I think more difficultly, to sit by the bedside of someone who's dying, to hold their hand, to stay there even when they're yelling out at you because they're in so much pain, to be with someone as they, they're deteriorating in their mind and they forget about who you are and their relationship with you. They can't remember who you are. Are you willing to be committed to them even through that difficult phase? So doing life and death together, I think that's a qualifier. If someone is willing to commit themselves to you even through the difficult times, not just the celebrations or the fun, but to stick with it, that's an indication that they should be someone you welcome into your life. This was Paul. Paul risked his life for the Corinthians. He would be willing to die for them. But he was wondering if they'd be willing to do the same for him. Secondly, boldness towards each other. He talks about this boldness towards one another. And this is kind of that trust to speak freely and truthfully to one another. Now, we know that sometimes it can be difficult to speak the truth to someone. Maybe they're blind to their sin, and you have to guard your words very carefully because they're very tender, and and you don't want them to, uh, to be triggered and never talk to you again if you say the wrong words. It's like walking on eggshells, you know, like, I better not say the wrong thing, which means, therefore, you cannot speak freely in that relationship. And perhaps some of you are in such a relationship where you feel like you really have to guard all of your words and you can't truly tell them what you really think. The value of an open heart relationship is that you give one another permission to speak freely. It's like in the military, permission to speak freely, granted. That should be the the constant attitude of true friendship where you are open to hearing what they actually think. And the older I get, the more I value such a relationship. I don't have time for all these little niceties and all these little idiosyncrasies and stuff like that, beating around the bush. Just tell me what you think. What do you really think? And you know what? Sometimes when we share what we really think, sometimes we're wrong. And then there's a reverse action that happens where you say, "Uh, actually, I believe you're kind of ignorant about what you're talking about. Are you aware of this, this? Oh, I wasn't aware of that. Oh, okay, you've changed my mind, right? But 
that's the value of such a close relationship is that you can you don't have to pretend like you know or pretend like you don't know. You just say what you know, and through the process of friendship, both of you are refined, and you come to a better knowledge and understanding of the truth. And so if you're in such a relationship, you can have such boldness towards one another. So seek friends who ha- have that similar desire. Proverbs 27.5 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. So we should also surround ourselves with people who will call out our missteps and our sins and our problems and who we identify that they're not calling it out in such a way to manipulate us or to control us or to leverage us or to exercise authority over us, but rather that they are coming in full support as a friend who cares about our Christian development, our righteousness. And you should be able to tell the difference. There's a difference. Next, he talks about having pride in that friendship. True friends are proud of their friendship. And not in an arrogant way where you go tell other people, look at us, I bet you don't have a close friend like I do. We do everything together. Who do you have as a friend? In fact, I have 10 close friends. How many close friends do you have? That's not the kind of pride that Paul's talking about. He's talking about a, just a righteous appreciation of the fact that you have a close brother or sister in Christ that you can do life and death with, that you speak boldly. The kind of friend that you know that if somebody is bad-mouthing you or slandering you behind your back, that they will step up and defend your honor and say, hey, don't you talk about my friend that way. They're a good person. Yeah, they're not perfect, but don't talk about my friend that way. Rather than somebody who jumps into the slandering and contributes to it, but rather somebody who truly knows your heart and is proud of your relationship. Do you defend the reputation or do you want to defend the reputation of your friend? This doesn't mean that we are all free from criticism, however. Sometimes you, you run into people who just have a blind obedience to somebody and uh, are, are not even willing to say anything critical about that person. I think that's an unhealthy relationship as well because you, you get into idolatry, you get into worship. And if they're any kind of a charismatic person, that's how a cult leader is, is made, is when they're not allowed to be criticized at all. My wife and I have been watching a lot of these uh, kind of different cult documentaries, and that's the one common factor among cult leaders is that they do not allow people to criticize their leadership at all. It's leadership worship, it's idolatry. And so if you are proud of a friendship, that generally means that you have a, a deep respect of that person and you're willing to defend them when necessary, defend their honor, but be, again, bold and honest about them. Next, he talks about the fact that such a friendship, you're filled with comfort. I think true open-heart relationships are comfortable. It, it's not awkward or weird or you don't feel uncomfortable being around them, but rather total comfort, and I think this is where the boldness comes in as well, where you're comfortable being in their presence, you're comfortable hearing from them encouragement or rebuke. It's just a comfortable exchange, and you know it when you find it. 
And I think God gives us discernment for relationships by way of this comfort. If you're getting to know somebody and you just always feel really uncomfortable with them, that's God through discernment telling you, wait a second, before you open up your heart to this person, you need to dig a little bit further. You need to keep a little bit of a wall up because there's something you need to discover about this person's intentions. So allow the comfort that you feel with other people to be the discernment of God in your relationships. Because I believe uh, God gives us such discernment in fellowship as a protection. And we should listen to that discernment. Again, this, you know, sometimes maybe our, our, we mistake our discernment for our own emotions or our own ideas or things like that. So you really need to learn to distinguish between the two. But a lot of times our emotions and our thoughts are meant to lead us to some kind of an action, some kind of a, well, maybe I should pause this relationship for a second and prayerfully think through it before I commit anymore. So, when we talk about Christian relationships, Christian togetherness starts by making room in our hearts for others, and I think we should all have that attitude where we desire to have such a relationship with all fellow believers. So, as you're here this morning, if you are dedicating yourself to this church fellowship, if you're a church member, if you're a friend of the church, if you're a believer, if you're a seeker, whatever it is, um, as you're coming here this morning, you should have a desire to develop such relationships. And our goal and our hope is that every single one here would be such a person where we could have such open heart relationships with, where there's just that true trust and sanctifying capacity in our relationships, building us up in the faith, drawing us closer and closer to Christ, helping us to be sanctified in our, in our actions. So that is our goal. But also recognize that this takes time because not everybody becomes fast friends or open heart friends right away. This takes time. And for me, a, a red flag is when somebody wants to just immediately jump into a, a deep, intimate relationship with you right away. And if you're not open to that, then they're offended and they get mad at you because you're, you're not willing to go at the same pace that they want to go to. To me, that's a little bit of a red flag. We should all be patient in our relationships as we are growing closer to one another. Paul, <clears throat> Paul moves on here in the next section. He continues, In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So it was, it's no mystery that Paul suffered great affliction in doing his ministry work. Here he talks about the affliction he received at Macedonia. He was restless. He was fighting. He was in, in fear in certain circumstances. And this led to him having a downcast spirit. Can anybody relate to Paul as you're trying to make your way through this life? You're dealing with restless or issues that cause you to be restless. In other words, maybe there's a conflict at work, conflict in your family, in your relationships, and you cannot sleep because of it. 
you're restless. You wake up in the middle of the night to go pee, and you can't go back to bed because suddenly that problem comes into your mind, and you're just laying there, thinking about it, praying about it, restlessness. Paul dealt with that. And if anybody has been in any kind of uh, ministry work, you deal with restlessness. You think about these things. You care about these things. The fighting, the constant fight, we are at constant war against sin, against the devil, against the dark spirits of this world. It's a fight. This life is a fight. Every time you get up and get out of bed, it's a fight to keep moving forward. How often do you lay there thinking like, I got so many issues to deal with today, I would just rather lay here and just kind of not fight today. I don't want to fight. And then the older you get, you're fighting with your own body. Your own body is attacking you. Your own body is saying, no, just lay around all day. You know if you get up, your knees are going to hurt, your back is going to hurt. You might slip and fall. You might hurt yourself for weeks, right? So you're, you're even fighting against your own mortal shell and against the world and against the sin and the flesh and the devil. And Paul was just constantly going and fighting. He was restless. And there were times of fear. The Bible tells us not to fear, that perfect love casts out all fear. But if we're honest with ourselves, there are times where we are caught up in a moment of fear, fear of not succeeding in the mission God has given us, Fear in in the fact that people might make our lives really uncomfortable. If we're honest, sometimes we're faced with the temptation to be in fear. And all of these things lead us to have a downcast spirit. And if you have enough of these things all at once for a long period of time, it can cause you to go into a, a great downcast, depressed spirit. You know, people say, well, you're a Christian. You should never be depressed. (laughs) So says the people who never, ever enter into ministry. So says the people who never, ever take a step out in faith and do things that are are dangerous and hard. Man, if you're faced with those things for too long, it, it can really weigh you down. Yes, Christians can get depressed. But the great thing about this is that God says that blessed are those who mourn they shall be comforted. In your times of depression, if you are a true believer, despite the fact that you're feeling depressed, our joy and our hope is that we can look to God expecting comfort is coming. And what a day that is when comfort does come. And it comes in many different ways. But the best way and the usual way that it comes is through other people, other believers. God uses the church to comfort the church. Sometimes the Holy Spirit gives us just a a boost, but most often it comes through other people. Look at Paul's comfort here when he was dealing with his issues in Macedonia. He talked about how Titus was comforted by the church at Corinth. And then when Titus came to visit Paul, he paid forward that comfort to Paul. And just news of the church at Corinth gave him comfort and encouragement and built him up. How often have you been in a moment of despair and all of a sudden you hear a knock on your door and it's your good friend, you know, the one that you're comfortable to be around. 
And they come in. They give you some flowers in your time of need. They sit by you and, and listen to your stories of woe. They share a prayer with you, share a meal with you. How often have you experienced that in your life? Or even just a phone call or a text at just the right moment when you're just laying there in agony and suddenly you receive a text that just makes your day. My friends, this is God comforting you. I mean, yes, we should be thankful for such friends, but ultimately all comfort comes from God. When you experience comfort in those hours, it is God's comfort trickling down through his will and, and through people. God is the God of all comfort. Second Corinthians, in fact, Paul opened up this entire letter by talking about the comfort that God gives. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you see that God, when he comforts, his comfort trickles down through the church? So anytime you are comforted, immediately give thanks to God because it's God making sure that you receive it in times of mourning or distress. So Christian togetherness includes building each other up. And when we have open heart relationships and, and they're mutually edifying, then we can expect to receive comfort from one another. And such relationships are not going to be one-sided. Again, we're doing life and death together. So when you're experiencing times of death and I'm experiencing a time of life, I'm going to come alongside and I'm going to encourage and comfort. And by, hopefully it works vice versa as well that we are together in this gospel effort. Paul continues on in verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. So Paul, in his ministry, and his leadership, as he was rebuking sins as he saw them, that gave the church grief. Now, in today's, in today's culture, causing grief to others is viewed as a cruel and unloving Thing, that we are meant to make people feel happy and good all the time. And if you don't make people feel happy and good all the time, then you don't love them. Then you hate them. But the Bible tells a different story. And yet again, today's culture gets it entirely wrong. In cases like this, which Paul is talking about, the church at Corinth had some sin problems they were dealing with. And Paul, because he loved them, he called them out on it. Again, 
He was bold towards them because he loved them and because he wanted to have that relationship with them. But as it turns out, even though they felt grieved for their sin, even though they felt emotionally like, oh, like a failure, ultimately that grief led them to repentance. And that repentance led them to a more righteous life. And that more righteous life led them to a relationship closer to Christ. And a relationship closer to Christ is life abundant. And so if you love somebody, you are willing to grieve them over their sin so that it turns to life abundant. I mean, that's ultimately our goal in these relationships, is to edify and build each other up in the faith, even if it means a little bit of grief for a little bit of time. Because the problem is with the world, when the world grieves their sin or the outcome of their sin, and they wonder like, why are all these things happening to me? Well, look at your life. What are you doing? What are the decisions you're making? Are you making decisions that are harmful to yourself and harmful to others? Yes, that's what sin is. Sin is not just offensive to God, but it's harmful to yourself. I mean, that's why the Bible tells us to to not drink much wine. A little bit of wine is okay, but if you're getting drunk every night or every week, is that good for your body? No, it is not good for your body. It's destructive. It'll, It'll ruin you. It'll make your life miserable. Not only that, but it'll cause you to be addicted to it and cause you to do stupid things. And while you're drunk, you're going to do stupid things. You're going to cheat on your wife. You're going to steal. You're going to hurt other people, say things that you can't take back. Right? Are these good things? They're not good things. And that's why the Bible tells us what it does. Because sin is ultimately destructive to humanity and also to ourselves. And so part of our Christian togetherness is our commitment to accountability. As we are accountable to each other, we are building each other up in the faith. And this process can be grieving, but ultimately, it is good. You know, as you enter into church fellowship together, as you join into these open-heart relationships, that is the automatic feature of a Christian fellowship, is that if you enter into Christian fellowship, you're opening yourself up to criticism, constructive criticism. You're opening yourself up to accountability. We, we don't just come here to stay the way we are. We come here to be changed by Christ. And to be changed by Christ is to live according to his word and by the Holy Spirit. And in order for that to happen, we need the church. We need sanctification. We need accountability. If you think that you can grow in Christ all by yourself, living on top of a, a hill somewhere, and you might say, well, just me and my husband, we do church here at home. My friends, you are not going to grow. You are not going to be sanctified unless you are plugged into church fellowship. That's why God gave us the church, so that we would not be alone, so that we could be encouraged, so we could be sanctified, refined, rebuked, corrected, trained, all those things. And all those things involve a little bit of grieving. But that little bit of grieving leads to greater things. And so Paul, he wrote letters to them. He caused them to be grieved. Uh, Godly grief versus worldly grief. Obviously, godly grief is what we're after. Consider, if you will, Peter and Judas. 
What was Peter's biggest failure, his biggest blunder, according to the Scriptures? He denied Christ. So in the end, Peter, supposedly this close friend of Jesus Christ, an open-heart relationship with Christ, one who Jesus showed him his glory on Mount Transfiguration. But yet when it came down to death time, Peter said, I never knew this man. I don't claim, I'm not proud of this relationship. I don't know him. He was not willing to die along with the Savior. But did Peter just die in his grief? What happened to Peter? Was that the end of Peter's story? No, he grieved for a little while, but Christ restored him. And he went on to be one of the most influential apostles in the first century. And ultimately, when it came down time to die, Peter, in that moment, he stepped up and, as legend has it, he was crucified just like Christ. So Peter, his grief was temporary, but his glory is eternal. Judas, on the other hand, Judas who betrayed Jesus for money, was he restored? Not according to Scripture. But ultimately, in his grief, he hung himself, and his insides spilled out. And so here you have two different types of grief. Peter's grief and Judas's grief. And may we all learn as Peter did. And may we all be restored as Christ, or as Peter was in his grief. The last section here, verses 13 through 16, <clears throat> continues on. Therefore we are comforted, and beside our own comfort we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I make to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his, his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Now Paul here brings his idea full circle and repeat some of what he was talking about earlier, just this idea of being a comforting relationship with one another. Everybody in ministry has their own hardships, but open-hearted relationships and ministries who do life together, who do death together, we are committed to the same goal, and that is the glory of God through our work. And Paul, he shares here at the end that he had complete confidence in them. Now, if you remember the first letter, despite their many faults, Paul still considered them to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, as we look around the room, as we consider each other, um, can anybody name somebody in this congregation who is perfect and who we should strive to be like? Can, can you point to any person in this? Okay, and if you do, then that person may become a cult leader because nobody is perfect. We all have our shortcomings, we all fail, and we all need Christ, and we need each other. And we can still have complete confidence in each other and the work that we're doing, even if we are imperfect, so long as we are striving together towards the Lord and towards his kingdom. 
And so as we consider one another, the most important thing we can be confident in, in is each other's salvation. And one of the great joys of pastoral work or ministry work is that I get to talk to people about Jesus Christ. And I mean, unlike before I became a pastor, people actually come to me and talk to me about Jesus. They'll be like, oh, where's the pastor? They, they come and find me and they, they want to know about Jesus. And that's kind of the cool privilege of my position because before you really had to work for it if you're out in the world. You had to really just dig for it. But here I, I can both dig for it and people just come to me and that's great because I love leading people in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that they can confess and believe in him as Lord and have eternal life. That is my most favorite thing. And part of that also is once that confession has been made, then I get to lead them in baptism as well. And today, we have four souls who have made the decision to follow Jesus Christ and to be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to do that here in, in about five minutes. If we could, uh, Jim, get, get the Children's Church people to, to come back in. Um, but briefly, I just want to say this. As far as baptism goes, if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, Scripture calls us to be baptized and to be baptized into water. And the whole idea is that it symbolizes what Christ has done within us. See, because what comes first is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you are saved, Christ saves you in that moment. When you confess and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, you are saved and baptized spiritually in that moment. So in other words, let's say you're on vacation, you give your life to the Lord while standing at Ocean's Edge, and then you're driving back on the way home, and you get in a wreck and you die. Are you saved? Yes. You're saved before you get to the baptism waters. But however, so long as you have breath, so long as you have life, you must be baptized as a, as a public confession of your faith. It's a testimony. It's symbolic of what Christ has done for us, how he has saved us from the bondage of sin, and he has freed us through his Holy Spirit. And so this morning... I want to invite up those who we have had conversation with, the, uh, the Lenards family, and also Heather Gibson, if you'd come on up as well. And I would like to also invite up uh, the kids, if the kids would like to come and come up close to witness what's being done here. <laughs> 